Welcome to the Traveling Image Makers Podcast, your source of inspiration about travel photography. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy the ride as we bring you on a tour around the world with our guests. Welcome, everybody, to a new episode of the Traveling Image Makers podcast with your hosts, Ugo Che and Ralph Velasco. Hi, Ralph. How are you doing today? Hey there, Ugo. I'm doing very well. How about yourself? Doing good, too. Doing good, too. Uh, we're finally starting to open up a few things here, little by little, so we're able to go out more. Hopefully, now I can actually go out without having a very urgent reason to do so. So I'm planning to, as soon as I find some time, go out and take some photos, which I've not been doing for, for a while. And uh, I don't have to justify doing so. I just I can just go out and take photos. So I'm just thinking of what photos I want to take. Anyway, what about you? What's the, any, anything, any new news from you? Well, you know, the weather's starting to break here a little bit, although we uh, did get our April showers and they're definitely going into May. So we've had uh, two or three days in a row of some pretty wet weather, but uh, I love a good rain and thunderstorm, although uh, I am looking forward to some nicer days to be able to actually get outside with some fresh air and uh, maybe take some shots myself. But uh Looking forward to things starting to open up, uh, hopefully slowly, so that we're not back in the same position again in a few months with a, a rebound. So I'm hoping that uh, people will you know, respect the work that the frontline workers have done to get us to this point, and uh, nothing worse than taking one step forward and two steps back. So I hope people don't uh, get a little too crazy and kind of jump you know, I know we're all, you know, cooped up and want to get out and do stuff, but, uh, you know, I think we need to do it in steps. Let's talk about our guest of today, uh, who is all about being out in the, in the wilderness and, uh, and nature. So I think that's, that's very pertinent. And uh, I interviewed him, wow, that was years ago when I was doing a, another show, uh, and we talked about uh, mostly about mirrorless cameras, if I if I remember right. Anyway, um, chatting with us today from his home in Banff, Canada, we have Paul Ziska. Hi, Paul. How are you doing? We're doing pretty good here in Banff. Ugo. Hey, Ralph. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to uh, to speak with you this morning. Great, great to have you have you here. How long was that? Seven or six or seven years ago, I think. I believe. I don't know what's. Uh, What's, uh, what's changed from then? I know you were all into uh, nature and wilderness and uh, hiking and exploration, climbing, all those kind of things. And uh, I was, I contacted you and interviewed back then because I was uh, absolutely taken aback by your photos and your unique style. So uh, maybe you want to introduce yourself to our audience and maybe tell us about what's changed in, this, in these uh, last few years, uh, if anything has changed. Yeah, for sure, Ugo. Uh, I'm Paul Ziska. I'm originally from Eastern Canada. And uh, I, I've been based out of the West now in the Canadian Rockies for over 10 years. And I've been doing photography full-time for over 10 years. 
And I specialize, I suppose, in anything outside. So a lot of a lot of uh, adventure photography, astrophotography, landscape, travel, uh, anything outside. I'm happy. Uh, and what's changed over the last uh, few years since we last spoke? Uh, well, I still have that passion for for the wilderness, for sure, and for remote places and high places. Uh, I now have two kids in the mix, so I, I just have uh, a bit more of a juggling act happening every day in order to pursue uh, all of my passions. So that's the main thing that's changed for me. But uh, otherwise, still loving being based out of Banff, being close to nature, and I try to get out as much as much as I can. And like everyone, I've got big plans once uh, once you know we're allowed to. Uh, to go back out there as much as as much as we want. What are what are some of your uh, plans that are on the the near horizon once things open up? Do you have any specific places that you're looking forward to getting to? You know, Ralph, living where I live, um, I find the list just gets longer every year. Um, I, I've got this elaborate sort of spreadsheet where I I put all my photo ideas. And, and places I want to check out. And um, given that we don't really know what will be open, so the national parks, I live in the national park, the national park system is due to reopen in about 12 days. We don't mm -hmm. really know, um, we don't really know to what extent we're going to be able to explore. Is it going to be just daytime, overnight, uh, certain areas, other areas remaining closed? We don't really have the specifics yet. So I haven't put too much work into um, putting together specific trips. I'm kind of waiting to hear what's going on like everyone else, but there's no, there's no lack of ideas. That's for sure. There's so many possibilities, even just within a short distance from, from where we live. Well, why, why, I mean, I, I'm familiar with Banff. I was there many, many years ago, but why don't you let people know that don't, aren't familiar with it. Tell us a little bit about Banff itself and that part of the Canadian Rockies and how wonderful it is. I'd love to, Ralph. I mean, the the uh, the amount of natural beauty is, is pretty much unsurpassed in my mind. It, it the the amount of beauty per square kilometer that you have around here, and therefore the amount of possibilities that you have as a photographer, uh, is uh, it's limitless, really. And that's what drew me to uh, to the place initially, and that's what sort of kept me here for much longer than I anticipated. And so, um, no, even even 10 years later, I'm still overwhelmed by the by the possibilities as a photographer. And I see that uh, I see that in people's eyes when they come and shoot the Rockies for the first time. And they've they've heard so much about Banff National Park and Moraine Lake and Lake Louise and um, and and they're completely overwhelmed by the possibilities and the, the amount of natural beauty and and um and overwhelmed in a good way. You know, it's an assault on the senses. They're, they get emotional. They they reconnect with nature very, very quickly. It's amazing to see um, people who are very urban in their lifestyle come here and be completely transformed by the mountains. And uh, people come by the millions for, for that reason and uh, and come ho and go home changed for the most part. And it's, uh, yeah, it's a very powerful place that way. Extremely beautiful. Uh, lots of variety for photographers. You know, we've got all four seasons. There's lots to do at Valley Bottom. There's lots to do high up. There's a lot of um, readily accessible, iconic locations. There's a lot of places that, you know, you have to hike for a week to get to. So there's really something for everyone. And, and I think uh, anybody coming to the Rockies uh, won't go home disappointed. It's a fantastic place. 
that place I'm, I'm sure I mean, I've never been to the Canadian Rockies I'm pretty sure I mean also by judging by your photos and many other photos that I've seen it's amazing and you said it's amazing the during the four seasons of the year but you have kind of a a penchant for uh, for winter photography, right? Especially night winter photography. <laughs> uh, this is why I discovered you. Um, I'm sure you, you photograph also during the summer and the spring and the fall, but your winter photography is quite unique and always leaves me wondering uh, what draws you to that specific time of the year and time of the day. I mean, it's isn't that very uncomfortable and cold to <laughs> be out in the night in the winter? in the mountains? That's a great question, Hugo. I think it stems mostly from the fact that um, snow and ice are my favorite sub among my favorite subjects to shoot. And, and I, I'm always fascinated by how ice especially can always present different possibilities for photographers and always show itself in different ways, even though it's such a simple thing, you know, just solid H2O, you can, it still gives you so much to work with. And so I'm fascinated by ice. And so naturally, I end up shooting uh, at the high latitudes quite a bit. I end up shooting in the winter quite a bit. And even in the summer, that's what I gravitate to. I spend a lot of time around glaciers. So I shoot a lot of cold looking subjects in the summer as well. I just find um, I just find snow, ice, glaciers to be such um, dynamic subjects to shoot. Uh, and I love the nighttime, like you said, as one. Well. I love the interplay of of when you start mixing the two, um, you know, everything, all the magic that comes with the nighttime. When you start mixing that with um, snow and ice, there's just so much to work with. Um, and, and so I, I feel like a little kid. I feel like uh, it's a blank canvas that I have to work with and it gets me really, really excited creatively. So you seem drawn to, to some extreme things. Uh, I, I will also quote from your, uh, from your bio, from your website, where it says that among other things, and aside from exploring destinations such, such as Antarctica, Norway, Svalbard, Nepal, Greenland, the Caribbean, Newer, French Polynesia, Namibia, the Faroe Island, Baffin Island and the Torngat Mountains, which honestly I have no idea where they are. <laughs> you also... Uh, I've, I've done some pretty amazing adventures like uh, um, 1,400 kilometer unsupported double crossing of Iceland on foot and a 1,488 kilometer solo crossing of the South Island of New Zealand. That, that's pretty extreme. Uh, and I'm wondering, when you do those type of adventures, first of all, why you do those type of adventures and do, I know people explorers do those right but sometimes it's not photographers so do you find that photographically those type of adventures give you more than just going up to a location nearby and what type of equipment do you carry I imagine your equipment must be quite limited you're probably carrying everything with you so also your camera gear must wait very little Correct me if I'm mistaken. So what's your type of kit that you carry during those adventures? Yeah, no, those are great questions, Hugo. So interestingly, those two big walks that you're referring to, those kind of happened um, just prior to my uh, discovery of photography. So, um, and I think, you know, photography, um, 
what what drives me to go in the wilderness has always been curiosity and a desire to explore, I think, like many people. And photography, even when photography came along, it was always kind of a um, it was never the priority. It still isn't the priority. It's always it's still a byproduct, I think. Uh, I, I, the main reason why I like to go outside is just to go see what's around the bend, what's what's over the hill, what's around the corner or, or how a place changes over time, over the course of a year. Um, and so the reason why I was drawn to doing those walks, um, the, the first, the first one, the Iceland crossing crossing is I was, um, I had just wrapped up university and I was just, uh, I was tired of the academic, uh, way of living and I want, I was craving wilderness. So I, I finished my degree and the next day I booked a flight to Iceland and back then in 2004, as you probably know, Iceland didn't have the, the amount of tourism it, it has nowadays. So it was it was a much quieter place uh, and it had it, it was very much um, it was harder to find information about it as a whole. So it, it still held that sense of mystery back then for me. So the day after I finished my degree, I booked a flight to Iceland and I had zero money. I just finished university. So I started walking from the airport. And walked to the far end, and I came back to the airport sort of 44 days later as just a way to challenge other type, uh, another side of my brain. I was just craving um, another type of excitement that didn't have anything to do with, you know, math and physics and geology and any of that stuff. And that was so that was the purpose of that trip. And then then that just became addictive. I started getting used to those longer expeditions, and that led to the New Zealand crossing later on. And and after that, I took up photography and I still do fairly lengthy trips now with the kids. I can't take off for that long, but I still go fair ways into the backcountry. But still, what drives me, I think, to go out there is still very much curiosity and want, really wanting to, wanting to really slow the pace down. If I could, I would, that, that would be the way that I discover any place, would be on foot, taking my time not rushing through anything. Unfortunately, I don't have the luxury of time at this point in my life, but as soon as I can, I intend to return to that slower way of exploring um, for sure. As far as the gear goes, um, now when I go in the backcountry for several days, um, I'm, not, I'm not as much of a minimalist as people expect. I think I've just gotten used to carrying um, a fair amount over the years. So my standard day pack usually... My standard pack usually includes just at least a tripod, the wide-angle lens, and a camera. Uh, if I go in the backcountry, I'll usually carry a, a you know a telephoto as well, maybe a prime lens if I think there's going to be good nighttime opportunities, maybe a fisheye. So I carry a fair amount, um, at least all the way to like a base camp or something like that. And then then I, I might be more selective if I make day trips out of a base camp something like that. But I think uh, in terms of what gear to carry, it's it's trip specific. If you expect it's going to be a more technical climbing trip, then then I might not drag the 7200 all day. Uh, or if I expect that there's going to be lots of moonlight available, I might leave the prime lens behind. It depends on really the objective of the trip. And each trip, I think, calls for a different set of gear in my mind. So let me back up just a little bit, Paul. You, you, you said you you walked, you arrived in, in Iceland and you walked out of the airport and you just walked across the country and back. 
Is that uh, is that it? Unsupported? Did you ever take any kind of transportation whatsoever? Uh, no, I was on I was on my own the whole time, and I had uh, I started off with um, I didn't have a huge amount of experience then. I had a little bit of uh, trekking experience in the Rockies, but I started out with a massive pack, and uh, three or four days into it, I realized it wasn't gonna work. I had way too much weight, <laughs> so I kind of cut down to the essentials, and then. Uh, and then every time that I'd, uh, I'd enter a town, I would sort of hit the supermarket to resupply and then sort of walk, keep walking for a few days. And I think the most, the longest I went without encountering any kind of, uh, you know, urban area was probably a week or like seven to nine days going through, you know, the highlands, the middle there. Um, so, yeah, it was amazing. Just totally self-sufficient. Um, I was there in the summer, so if I felt good at 3 a.m., I would just keep walking through the night. I could always see where I was, where I was going. Um, and, um, and at that point, you know, the locals were, and I'm, that's not specific to Iceland, that happens everywhere, but whenever you go to a place where locals haven't seen a whole lot of visitors, they sh and especially when you're walking alone through the country, they show a tremendous amount of interest in what you're doing. So I met lots of great people. We had great conversations along the way. And it was, to me, I've been to Iceland a few times since, but it's still, it's still the, way, the way to see Iceland. If you can afford the time and you have the mobility to do it, it's incredible if you can get away from the road in Iceland. So it was, it was one of the tr best trips of my life still, and I didn't even have the camera with me. Wow. Really impressive. And so uh, were you doing, I mean, at that time of the year, you probably didn't, do a whole lot of the northern lights i imagine right in iceland in the summer no i was there in i was there in june and july so um yeah it was a midnight sun situation right. pretty much at, at it the sun did dip below the horizon but it never got dark but uh the the light was phenomenal all day as the sun just kept revolving around you know low around the horizon and um yeah, and I was able to, um, yeah, I was able to basically just walk uh, whenever I felt good, and and just, uh, you know, once I got used to sleeping in daylight, then then I was totally on my own schedule. The the amount of freedom was incredible. Did you ever think, damn, I wish I had a camera with me? I did at times for sure. Uh, you can't. Um, you witness so much beauty as as you gentlemen know you. You witness so much beauty that at some point you, it's natural to get that urge of wanting to share it with others. And part of it was wishing I had the camera, but most of it was just wishing I wasn't there on my own. So I would have someone I can sort of pat on the shoulder and just say, wow, look at this. Isn't this incredible? Whereas sometimes you see something that will never happen again and you, you have to accept that only your eyes will witness it. And sometimes it's hard to accept. And uh, in a way, I'm glad I wasn't a photographer, that, a photographer then because um, I think when you become a photographer, you, it's, there's always the, the, the pitfall of wanting to document, document, document everything that you see all the time to a point where you lose the ability to just appreciate it for what it is. And, and, I, and that didn't get in the way at all in Iceland because I, I wasn't used to the photography side of things then. So um, I, I still have very, very vivid memories of the place, I think prob partly because I didn't have the camera with me. Yeah, I could totally uh, feel that. And, 
you know, I know, I know that idea of you know, just putting the camera down and appreciating the place for for what it is. And I'm looking at uh, folks. We you have to look at Paul's website. Uh, we'll put links to it in the show notes for sure. But uh, these tell tell us about the self portraits uh, section of your portfolio here. It is absolutely stunning. Are you pretty much alone? Uh, in these places and photographing yourself in these cases? Um, yeah, so the self-portrait, uh, the self-portrait sort of um, happened in an interesting way in the sense that I wasn't, I was never looking to create like a cohesive body of work or any, I never sort of woke up thinking, well, I'm going to go create a series of self-portraits. They kind of happened by accident because um, I happened to shoot alone quite a bit. And there's situations where I felt like I could tell I could tell my story better by including the human element, and I just didn't have the luxury of a friend to say, you know, do you mind going to that standing in that spot for a second just so I can get the image Diane envisioned? So I was kind of um, so I didn't have any other option than to figure it out on my own and bring the tripod on the trips and then enter my own frame and get the camera get the intervalometer shooting. Uh, and so, um, for me, it, it's, and you'll notice, I think in, in the vast majority of self portraits, they're anonymous. You can't recognize who the person is. And, and that's because for me, the person who the person is, was never really important. Had I had a friend with me to shoot those images, I would have gladly gone that route. It would have made my life a little bit easier. It would have been faster to get the shot for sure. But the bottom line is I found myself alone and I really wanted the human element. So I entered the frame. But usually I'm very small in the photo where I'm silhouetted and and because the story is never about who that person is. It's more about, you know, a, a, um, anonymous relationship with the landscape. But uh, I really enjoy putting them together. They're challenging to put together. But if I'm given the chance when I'm out with friends on trips, I won't purposely include myself in the frame if I can just tell a friend to go to a certain spot. Yeah, it's more, I guess, uh, about the relationship of uh, people with nature, and the grandeur of uh, of that scenery. It doesn't really matter who is that person. So, right, it's not ma much about you. It's about the, a person in that wilderness, probably. Yeah, exactly, Hugo. I found that when you when you include a human figure in the shot that has that is you know um, too prominent in the image, then then people's brains start getting drawn to whatever's human. And so the, the people, people will start looking at a shot and think, oh, okay, this is, you know, this is a lady in her 30s and whatever, or this is an, uh, an older gentleman. And, and you, they're, they start going away. They start looking at the image and, and going the wrong direction that takes them away from the story you're trying to tell. It, it just becomes a distraction. So I prefer the, the uh, keeping things anonymous as much as I can. And I, I think it's uh, really important, uh, the backgrounds, because you're placing yourself in like the perfect spot in each of these shots. And a lot of times, I think when people do get uh, any kind of a self-portrait or even photographing other people or subjects, uh, they often don't look deeper into the scene to be aware of what's happening behind the subject. And you've just perfectly placed yourself in each one of these images here. Talk to us a little bit about that importance of background and, and, and lighting. I could tell that you're doing some light painting, I think, right? 
Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up, Ralph, because it's it's something that um, comes up consistently in workshop settings, for example. Uh, and it's something that does make or break an image. I think you can do everything right if if your if your human element is not if it takes 10 seconds to figure out where it is in the shot, or if the human element is sort of overlapping with three different kinds of backgrounds, or, you know, if basically if the image doesn't show intention, it makes or breaks the shot, I think. And so, um, I, you know, that's something that we talk a lot about in, in the yeah, in teaching settings, the importance of trying to find that clean foreground. Typically, it'll be the foreground of the, you know, one single type of foreground, just to keep things simple. Uh, and then uh, at night in particular, if you don't have that background, that that really, um, I might have said foreground, I meant background. If you don't have that background that separates, that clearly emphasizes your human element, then you might need to create it using light sources. And that's, that's a sort of, um, that's a good way to go at night to really, um, make your human element compete with all the amazing stuff that's happening elsewhere in the image, like the stars and the landscape. And I think if you don't make the human element prominent enough, nobody will bother even looking at it. Yeah, the, the, the northern lights that you're photographing here are just fantastic. And, and I've done a little bit of that up in Lapland, and I was only in Iceland in uh, the summer, so I didn't see the northern lights then. Uh, but th that 22 hours of gold, golden hour, pretty fantastic. Um, but in, in Lapland, uh, I've done a, a trip up there in uh, uh, Sweden and Finland. And I, I am not a night photographer. I'm not a nature photographer. But um, I found that it was relatively easy to photograph uh, the, the northern lights. It uh, I didn't need any special equipment, I mean, other than a tripod and maybe wide-angle lens. Can you talk a little bit about, uh, you know, what's involved in in doing sh photographing the Northern Lights? Because I know a lot of people, this is definitely on people's bucket lists. Yeah, for sure. I think, uh, I think in, in a way, you're right, that where people... Where people maybe go wrong in a way is they think that they have to approach it to approach the northern lights in a different way than they approach any other kind of nature photography. Um, I think, I think everybody goes through uh, a certain, um, you know, everybody kind of sort of follows the same trajectory when they start shooting the aurora at first you're thrilled to just get a bit of green in the shot, right? And it, if it might be out of focus, the composition might be horrible. And I recall being so happy to have a bit of green in my image. And then, but, but eventually I think you realize that those images don't stand the test of time and that you realize that, well, you're going to start to need to construct images the way that you construct any of your other images. And you, you're going to need some visual balance and some visual flow in the shot. And you're going to need to have the composition to to work out and you're going to need more than just a straight up uh, sky shot to make a compelling image so i think what's eventually what gets hard with the aurora is it's a fickle phenomenon and it just moves around a lot and you never know how long it's going to last 
but still you want to photograph it with the same care, with the same intention that you do any of your other shots so that your raw shots meet that certain standard. And that's where I think it comes down to really what I found in workshops is being really familiar with your gear and being very, uh, being very adaptable. I think that's where, that's where the, the, the adaptable photographers will, will be able to put together an image uh, while everybody else is still fighting with their tripod, you know, the, the people who know their gear and who have, um, yeah, and who can adapt to a, a situation quickly will basically come out on top. But it's, I think it's really a matter, a matter of just, um, you know, like any other kind of photography, training your brain to recognize opportunities very, very quickly in the field and not letting your gear get in the way. Uh, once all the technical stuff becomes second nature, then you can put together an, an Aurora shot very quickly in the field if you're given the chance. I like that idea of not letting the gear get in the way. That's a great way of putting it. <laughs> well, usually when we do Aurora workshops, they're three nights long. And we fully anticipate that the first night is a night of frustration of people swearing at their tripod, <laughs> repeatedly, find, you know, trying to find a button in the in the back of the camera, and, and it takes them, you know, five six buttons before they hit the right one. And and the night night one is to figure out, okay, what didn't work, what do we need to fix, and then we build on that on night two, and ideally on night three, we're starting to look at really really interesting images as we as we start to incorporate other things like a proper composition and some depth in the image and things like that. And now I'd like to dedicate some time to talk about some more present and pressing issues. And as much as I would like to go to Iceland or uh, the Canadian Rockies right now, uh, even though Iceland, I said they've probably been going to reopen to foreign travel uh, at mid-June. So I was seriously thinking about going there this summer. But anyway, we're pretty much confined, uh, each uh, one of us in their own countries, uh, because of this pandemic, this situation. So I would like to ask you, how has this affected your current uh, situation, your life, your photography, and your business also? Yeah, like, like everyone else, it's had a huge impact. It's interesting. Everybody seems to have been impacted, yet in, in, there's lots of different ways that people have been impacted. For us, uh, it was mainly, well, almost overnight, um, having to find new ways to generate income because we realized that some of our sources of income would probably dry up for a little while. And at the same time, you realize you're going to have the kids at home all the time for the foreseeable future. So those things don't really go hand in hand. Uh, and at the same time, we live in a national park and the national park system is shut down in Canada so that even though we live in the national park, we're not really allowed to do anything in it. Um, so that really cuts down on what you can do with the kids, what you can do with photography. Um, so it was a lot to take in almost overnight. Um, so like other photographers from a business standpoint, we just had to adapt very, very quickly. We had to try to generate uh, sources of income that were basically going to um, recoup some of the losses of this year because our whole I do a lot of stuff internationally. All that program was basically transferred to 2021. Um, and so we had to generate income somehow. And like a lot of other photographers, we turned ourselves to the online world. And I've been doing a lot of, you know, online courses and a lot of one-on-one -on -one mentorship and really a lot of stuff that I'd been wanting to do for a long time, 
but I didn't have a chance. I didn't have the time because I was on the road quite a bit. So it was actually nice to finally get to some of those things that I'd been wanting to do. But we've taken a big hit for sure, um, our, our business. But I think uh, there's, there's definitely hope on the horizon now. We're, we're feeling way more positive about things as we see the world reopening. And like Ralph pointed out, hopefully everybody will play nice and we can go back to uh, a little bit of what we were doing um, s soon enough. But it's been, uh, it's, been, it's been a tough go for sure. And uh, I feel for all the photographers out there who you know, just um, are struggling to make ends meet and struggling to, uh, to, to juggle all the priorities. Do you think we can learn something from this situation about our relationship with nature? I know that many people now are looking at natural phenomena with, with a different eye. Maybe it's just because they've seen videos on Facebook of uh, dolphins in where there were no dolphins before. Or I see I saw a video today of turtles on a beach where no turtles had been seen for years and so on. So do you think we humanity will learn something from this uh, about the relationship with nature also the fact that well this virus came from from nature from the way we treat nature from the fact that we uh, how we treat wildlife and bats in specific specifically or those pangolins uh, will, will people ever learn that's such a great question and I'm, I'm so glad you're bringing it up and i'm so glad to see some attention brought to that question over the last little while because, um, you know, in a way, as much as the pandemic has provided us, oddly, with that amazing opportunity to rethink the way that we manage the land and, and the, rethink our interaction with the wilderness, um, not, I, I suspect that nothing's going to get done at the government level because, well, they're preoccupied with solving the pandemic. So all of the other issues sort of on the back burner for now that's kind of how it feels in canada anyways um and so right now it's sort of how do we keep people alive uh, and and there's not a lot of talk about well how can we make the most of this very unusual um sort of complete stoppage of the world which might not happen for another 100 years right it's a in a way it's an opportunity wasted i think but i understand why you know they're they're they're, they're busy with, with other priorities i get said that i think that on a personal level there's so much that we can do and i'm sure a lot of people have given a lot of thought to how they want to um interact with nature once they're you know once they're allowed to go a little further i think a lot of people and i know that from personal experience because i've had the conversation with a lot of people a lot of people are realizing the how much value nature uh, added to their lives and i think a lot of us were already conscious of that so, you know, right away when this pandemic happened and they said we're shutting down national parks, I, I right away I thought, oh, my gosh, I'm going to miss so much going, you know, camping and skiing and doing all that stuff. But I think at the same time, you have all those other people who were impacted by nature in a positive way, but were maybe not as conscious of the contribution that nature made to their lives. And I think now they're very much aware of that as the world reopens. I think you have a lot of people who now are dying to go camping and reconnect and rekindle their appreciation for the wilderness. And they want to do it right. They want to do it in a sustainable way. And they recognize that everything's related and that we're getting hit by this pandemic 
you know, at least partly because we've disregarded uh, our environment and we've had an unhealthy relationship with it. And so I think on a personal level, it's going to do wonders for the wilderness. Sure, you're going to keep seeing a lot of sort of questionable behavior. We're in Banff National Park. We see a lot of weird things happen every day that people are not supposed to do that you just kind of shake your head and you're, you're like, what is going on here? But at the same time, you see a lot of amazing positive behavior, a lot of people doing it right. And I think we're going to see more and more people um, just behaving the way they're supposed to when they return to, to the natural, to, to the landscape. I think we're going to see a lot more people camping and i think a lot of a lot of us were realizing that even more than ever um life is short and and if you are going to establish that relationship with nature and strengthen it and deepen it well there's no time like the present you got to get after it now so i think we'll see lots of people getting into hiking in a big way trekking camping and so um and when people get into that in a big way that's when they start to connect with the environment. And then when they connect, they start caring and then things start to get sustainable. So I'm hoping we're going to see less sort of drive-by nature, drive nature experiences and a little bit more immersive experiences. I sure hope so. I'm not that confident, but <laughs> I really hope so. Just, just yesterday I had to reprimand the guy who came out of the supermarket and threw his uh, gloves on the ground. Oh, come on, guy. Just <laughs> pick them up. <laughs> I don't know. We'll see, I guess. Yeah, time will tell, I guess. Yeah, let's hope that, uh, yeah, let's hope everybody plays nice and uh, everybody learned a lesson from this, uh, this, this situation. I mean, something that uh, I, your trips, it sounds like your workshops are mostly, if not all, out in nature very, uh, you know, not a lot of people, just maybe your group for the most part. And a lot of my trips, because I, I organize and lead tours, uh, were mainly based around bigger capital cities and things like that. And and I inadvertently was slowly kind of getting away from those kinds of trips. Um, it wasn't because I saw this pandemic on the horizon or anything, but about a year and a half ago, I started moving my trips to more more uh, intentional travel, slower travel, more outdoors, you know, stay in one place for a period of time, not moving around so much, sitting in vehicles and being out in nature. And so I have a feeling that uh, a lot of things are going to move in that direction and uh, and in, in the direction of because mine aren't as, as uh, remote as yours for sure. But uh, people, I think, are going to appreciate that open space and freedom and lesser crowds. Yeah, for sure. I agree with you, Ralph. I think, uh, you know, there's there's all sorts of all sorts of predictions um, regarding, you know, what will people want? What will they do once they're allowed to? But I, I personally suspect there's going to be. Um, there's going to be a huge demand in those types of experiences that get people closer to nature and get people to understand it. That's, that's what I suspect. Absolutely. What about you, Hugo? Do you agree with that? Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, I'm sure people will want to maybe for some time avoid as highly urban busy places uh, so they will 
probably lead more people to discover nature, so maybe they didn't even consider it uh, in the first place. What I'm not sure is that if they will really appreciate that. I hope so. Maybe I'm, I guess, as I said, we'll see what will happen there in terms of uh, trends and attitudes. I think we have, this is, I, I don't want to sound like like a doomsday preacher, <laughs> but this is probably our last chance to preserve nature and preserve ourselves in the process. If we miss this opportunity, I'm, I'm afraid that there will not be another opportunity. So I hope everybody uh, gets it and just uh, does as you as you were saying, thinking of uh, nature is something that we can, we've come to kind of ignore, but the moment it's taken away from us, we realize how important it is. That's my hope, at least. I, I'm I'm seeing that, and I think it was actually in Milan that I heard about this. That some uh, cities that now everything is closed down and the streets are empty, and there's sort of this clean slate. And it's 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 a thing where you know hopefully we're not going to see this for you know more you know hundreds of years again have this opportunity to sort of have this clean slate. Was it in Milan where they're like putting in? bike lanes that they didn't plan on doing until 2030 or something. And, and now they're fast forwarding that kind of stuff. So I think in that sense, if we take advantage of this sort of clean slate and this reset, and, and like you say, if we don't take advantage of that, we're missing a huge opportunity. Milan definitely, and also other European cities have heard they started uh, implementing plans to extend the network of uh, bike lanes, for example. Yeah. Right. Yeah, and I think that's that's uh, that's that brings up you know an important point where I think as much as we'll need everybody, all the individuals to play nice and do some self policing and all that, and we'll we'll need some changes at the government level that encourage that that go in the same direction. So I think now that what's going to be crucial, I think, is as soon as the government feels like the crisis, the pandemic is somewhat under control. Now, very, very quickly, they're going to have to turn around and look at and, and manage the, the natural spaces, um, you know, in a way that is sustainable, because all of a sudden everybody's going to rush. But you saw that in some countries, right? The second the day that they reopen some some protected areas, I mean, the city is just emptied to go to some of those places. And so in a place like here, for example, in Bath National Park, it's how do we make sure that. We don't have four million people going to the same three roadside spots when the rest of the park is empty. And how do we, you know, now that, you know, the pandemic is, is going to once it's sem somewhat under control, how do we how do we quickly implement, um, you know, rules within the park system that are going to, um, yeah, keep keep the park, um, you know, sort of respect the wildlife, respect the land as well. I think I think at the government level. We're going to need the authorities to act very, very quickly uh, so that people don't go back to their old habits. All right. I would love to keep this conversation going for uh, for much longer, but I think you, uh, you have another uh, commitment following uh, right after this one. Uh, so I would just like to give you some time to 
uh, give our listeners uh, a couple maybe pointers to your website. Uh, if you want to mention the workshops that you're going to hold, uh, if not now in 2021, or when it will be possible to hold them, just so they maybe can start dream and planning uh, about those. Wonderful. Thanks for the opportunity. So yeah, my the website we just actually relaunched a couple days ago. So we use this uh, we use this sort of um, yeah this interesting weird time of the pandemic in order to get to some uh, some items that were in the back burner for a long time. So we redid the whole website. So website is at uh, ziska.ca z i z k a dot c a. And so uh, otherwise, in terms of uh, workshops, um, yeah, we've got lots of exciting trips that we'll do uh, once we're allowed to both here in Canada and abroad as well. And uh, that's usually all those happen as part of a, a different company uh, that um, that's called Offbeat Photography. So it's offbeatphoto.ca and everything is listed on there. We've got uh, we got probably 90 plus percent return rate on our trip. So there's not a huge amount of spots available, but there's some uh, on most trips for sure if people are interested. And otherwise, uh, otherwise I'm easy to find on social media. So I uh, hope, hope to connect with people on there, uh, especially now in this time where, you know, we're relying so much on technology in order to stay connected. It's been amazing to be able to chat uh, with people on social media and, and do those types of interviews and and answer some questions and comments on Facebook and Instagram. So it's always great to see people going there. And do you want to mention some of those destinations just to spark the listeners' curiosity? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, in 2021, we're going to have Bhutan, we've got Greenland, uh, we've got Botswana, uh, we've got Mongolia happening as well. And then shortly after that, we'll have Greenland, Iceland, um, as well as, um, yes, a few, a few trips within Canada as well. And so, yeah, lots, lots of, um, lots of opportunities for people to, um, not only kind of really dive into their creative side, but also really develop a true appreciation for the wilderness. And we, in, in sort of increasingly, we run trips the way that Ralph, um, alluded to, which is, you know, slow things down. We realize that immersion to immersion takes time and good photography takes time. You can't rush good photography. And so we usually allow more and more time at any of the places that we go for people to truly connect with the place and create their images without sort of being, being sort of shuttled from one location to another. Uh, that's not what we're about. So that's, that's, those are the types of trips that we offer. Uh, if people want to just get away from it all after this pandemic and really rekindle their appreciation for the for the wilderness, then um, then we'd love to have you. Great, all places that are on my bucket list as well. So one day I'll visit all of them, maybe with you. Well, who knows? So thank you very much for being with us today. Uh, we'll put links to your site and your workshops uh, website on the show notes. And before we wrap this up, Ralph, where can people find more about you online? Yeah, so in the usual places, there's photoenrichment.com and also my new, uh, relatively new travel brand, Alacampania Experiences at alacampania.com. And you can re reach me at all the social media networks at Ralph Velasco and at Photo Enrichment. 
And uh, we're in uh, mid to late May right now, and I'm still uh, hoping that uh, we could salvage the fall season with some great trips to Armenia and Georgia, Spain, uh, India, Cambodia, and also France's Dordogne. And I just released a trip to Postcard Puglia, so the heel of Italy, and really excited about that trip. Uh, that's really going to be a, sort of a uh, postcard uh, version of the Alicampagna experience where we're staying in one uh, agriturismo and getting to know that region very well. And from my understanding, Ugo, you might know more about this, but uh, 40% of Italy's uh, olive oil production is in from Puglia. And so I found that very interesting. So I just love olive oil and olive oil tasting and wine and great food. So looking forward to that. Yeah, I wasn't aware it was exactly 40%, but if you had asked me, I would have said yes. That's the prime Italian region for olive oil production, definitely. Good. And as for me, you can find everything about me at my website, ugochaiphotography.com. And as for my tours as well, I hope to do some tours uh, this fall, maybe the Japan uh, fall color tours. Um, you can find them at tours.ucphoto.me. And as for this podcast, all the previous episodes, including this one, you will find them at ttim.photo.